this afternoon from the Arrowhead Pond in Anaheim, California, it's the Roller Hockey International All-Star Game, the Eastern Conference taking on the Western Conference. And for the West, this afternoon here is the starting lineup. Rob Laurie from Anaheim in the net, Joe Cook from the Bullfrogs on the back line, Victor Gervais also from Anaheim will start up front, surrounded by Darren Colburn and Mark Wolf from San Jose. Robbie Laurie, 26 years of age from Lansing, Michigan. 5-1-1 one one this year with a 5-2-9 goals against average. For the East team, Lamar set from Montreal. Daniel Lara and Doug Lawrence from Orlando. Andy Rimshaw from New Jersey. Tony Sabo leading the Long Island Jaws this year will start. Here's a Lamar set, 26 years of age from Rimouski, Quebec. 3-5-1 with Montreal, 5-8-2 goals against average. Michel Voyer is the referee. Martin Dennis and Joe Mazagowitz are the linesmen. We'll get to the rest of the lineups in just a bit, but we're set for the opening face-off. Craig Benervini, Jim Fox, great to have you with us for the third annual RHI All-Star Game, Gervais and Rimshaw, and we are underway. East, the road team in the dark uniforms, Daniel Larin working it up, checked by Darren Colburn, and it's knocked back to the East zone. Good poke check by Victor Gervais, making a chance, squeaks it ahead, trying to get rolled, but Rimshaw defensively with back. Here comes the East now. Lawrence coming in, passing in front, was looking for his man Tony Zabo, who could not find him. The Western Conference streaking back. Here's Wolf trying to tee up a shot and save in front by Morissette sliding on the Colburn glass. Colburn now still hanging in front. Good quick start. We expect a lot of goals, Jim, in this one. Offense all the way. It's an all-star game. That's the way they always are, especially in roller hockey. These guys are here to have fun, shoot the puck, and score a lot of goals. Hey, West has something to prove. East has won the two games played in Cheat. Vancouver. They cheated. St. Louis chance in front. Shot score! Darren Colburn left alone in front. You know you're going to get scoring, but you certainly don't want to <laughs> give it away, leaving him all alone in the Western Conference. Draws first blood. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello, friends. How's it going? My name is Tim Hanlon, uh, as announced, and uh, this is the little podcast that we like to call Good Seats Still Available. Yes, our curious little podcast journey each and every week. Uh, despite uh, all rational uh, thinking, into what used to be uh, in professional sports. We uh, have a great episode uh, this week. Uh, and frankly, when do we not? Let's be honest. No, just kidding. Of course, uh, we some are better than others. But uh, look, this one's this one's pretty darn good. Um, and it's one that I've been trying to uh, get set up for quite some time. And uh, I do not believe it'll be the last one that uh, we focus uh, on uh, the topic of roller hockey in particular, a little league in the uh, 1990s called Roller Hockey International, or by its uh, acronym RHI. And uh, our guest this week is Richard Neil Graham, and uh, he has written uh, uh, the, uh, frankly, the uh, quintessential uh, tome book about the history uh, of this very interesting, very crazy uh, in some respects, but also very uh, intriguing league called the RHI, Roller Hockey International. The name of the book is called Wheelers, Dealers, Pucks and Bucks, A Rocking History of Roller Hockey International. And um, we're going to get into this uh, this uh, this league, which uh, essentially was a summertime uh, hockey pursuit uh, founded by a guy that uh, comes up a lot in this show. And hopefully somebody will finally get to interview uh, in the uh, coming weeks. Um, and his name is Dennis Murphy. You uh, may remember him 
uh, as sort of the dean, uh, the Mount Rushmore uh, uh, face, if you will, uh, among a handful of others, uh, in uh, a number of uh, uh, essential leagues and uh, very definitional leagues, especially for this little podcast, uh, he being a co-founder of the old American Basketball Association, the ABA, he being a co-founder uh, and uh, uh, trophy champion named uh, after him uh, of the World Hockey Association, the WHA. Uh, Dennis Murphy was also part of the founding of World Team Tennis, uh, a topic that uh, we uh, have yet to explore, but is absolutely on our short list. Uh, but uh, in 1993 or so, uh, Dennis Murphy was smitten by uh, a, a sport, a phenomenon, uh, you know, sort of emanating out of where a lot of things do emanate from in this country, culturally, the Southern California, but not uh, confined to it. Uh, this uh, uh, this uh, uh, phenomenon, this little, uh, uh, we didn't call it a fad, but it was sort of a, uh, a, a, uh, a white hot uh, uh, spark of uh, excitement around inline roller skating and uh, and the various uh, appendages to it. Uh, in particular, uh, the playing of hockey. Obviously, hockey being a a long time uh, sport uh, in uh, winter time uh, on ice. Uh, of course, floor hockey or or street hockey. You know, played in sneakers and that kind of stuff. But this was sort of a combination of, uh, I guess, the modernization of what used to be called roller skating. Uh, that being more of an inline kind of uh, 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 mechanics, I guess, in terms of how uh, smooth and straight the uh, the blades run and uh, and the flexibility of such when uh, when on the wheels, plus uh, the excitement of the sport of hockey. Push those two things together, mash them up, and that's what RHI Roller Hockey International was designed to be. And this was a uh, a, a rollicking league uh, that spanned uh, in its second season. Uh, as many as 24 teams, count them. Uh, and we're going to get into some of that. Was well, it a little too early for that kind of uh, expansion? Uh, but all across the country, games on ESPN2, uh, uh, the initial uh, years, I guess, of the Deuce, uh, and uh, just an amazing uh, assemblage of uh, minor league uh, ice hockey uh, pros. You had a number of uh, NHL uh, veterans sprinkled throughout, and uh, and even some of the uh, folks from the Southern California region who uh, – Essentially, we're sort of the uh, the beach rats, if you will, of uh, of this game, this fledgling game. Uh, and we're going to get into all of it and all the fun and interesting and wacky uh, sort of stories and and uh, and uh, uh, storylines uh, around Roller Hockey International with our guest, Richard Neil Graham. Uh, in just a couple of seconds, this is an eyebrow razor epi- uh, raising episode, uh, if there ever was one. And I encourage you to uh, listen intently. Uh, to our interview, coupling up in a couple of seconds. Let's uh, get some uh, promotional things out of the way first, shall we? Uh, we'll uh, try to uh, pay our bills this month and uh, keep the show going. Uh, and uh, you can help that process by going to and uh, partaking uh, from or with our uh, sponsors, uh, one of which is OldSchoolShirts.com. OldSchoolShirts.com, our friend P.F. Wilson and friends uh, in Cincinnati. Uh, it is the place to go to find all kinds of uh high quality t-shirts uh, around teams and leagues that uh, are no longer uh, with us for whatever reasons. Uh, and we're, again, we're talking high quality stuff and uh, I, uh, I'm willing to bet you're going to find some RHI uh, logos uh, amongst the, uh, the wares there at oldschoolshirts.com. Look, you're also going to find things like old uh, amusement park uh, logos and old radio station uh, logos and amuse, uh, we said amusement parks, uh, shopping malls and all kinds of nostalgia from days gone by. Uh, but obviously sports, uh, especially leagues and teams 
not here anymore. Uh, Prime among them and oldschoolshirts.com. And make sure when you go there, you use that promo code that we'd love to give you early and often good seats and you're going to get 10% off of all of your purchases. So go there early, go there often. Kids, why don't you? It's oldschoolshirts.com. It's it's uh, spelled just like it sounds. And use that promo code GOODSEATS uh, for 10% all of your purchases. And uh, we thank P.F. Wilson and company there at oldschoolshirts.com. We also thank our uh, our West Coast friend in San Diego land, Dean Mitchell, and his, uh, his uh, uh, site, uh, which is also something to behold, and uh, partake uh, into uh, commercially. And that is sportshistorycollectibles.com. Sportshistorycollectibles.com is the uh, the quintessential place to go for all kinds of memorabilia uh, from the teams that you loved uh, in the past, from the leagues that you remember uh, wistfully or uh, lovingly uh, that for whatever reasons are no longer uh, on this uh, on this planet, uh, but to live on in the items and the memories uh, of its fans and players and uh, administrators. And uh, you will find uh, some amazing things uh, n- beautifully for, uh, photographed. Uh, and uh, there's clearly some items that are going to be gnawing at you to be purchased by you. And of course, once that uh, strikes, that uh, feeling that I must have this item or two or 10, you want to make sure that you use the promo code GOODSEATS there as well. And there at sportshistorycollectibles.com, you will get 15% off of all of your purchases. And I'm pretty certain you're going to find some roller hockey international stuff there too. Uh, you know, geez, what could it be from the Chicago cheetahs, perhaps the Atlanta fire ants, maybe the Oakland skates or the Connecticut coasters. Don't forget the Philadelphia bulldogs or the Minnesota blue ox, the New Jersey rock and rollers, the Anaheim bullfrogs, Calgary rads, who knows just, you name the team. There are just, there are dozens more that I haven't even named yet, but give a, give a look at uh, sportshistorycollectibles.com. I'm pretty sure. You're going to find something from the old RHI. Use that promo code GOODSEATS. 15% off will be yours. And we thank them, uh, Dean Mitchell and friends, uh, there for their patronage and their sponsorship of our show, too. All right. So we have uh, dutifully done that. Uh, We now segue nice and smooth, see, into our uh, enlightening conversation. Uh, Live from a boat off the uh, coast of San Diego, uh, we are joined by Richard Neal Graham, uh, the author of uh, the uh, amazing book about the RHI, uh, Wheelers, Dealers, Pucks and Bucks, the rollicking history of Roller Hockey International. Here is our chat right now. Obviously, Roller Hockey, uh, the 1990s, uh, a, this is a, a, a melange of, of storylines here, and we'll get to some of them, including the perhaps the, uh, the patron saint of it in a second. But before we go in any of that, uh, tell our audience uh, who you are and how you got involved in, uh, uh, I guess, what I uh, would imagine is the uh, the quintessential story behind this thing called Roller Hockey International. Well, I uh, had been playing roller hockey at the beach in Santa Monica for years, and uh, I think that once it really got going in the late uh, 80s, uh, I would say 88, 89, um, uh, was playing out there before, um, it became uh, a national phenomenon. And, uh, I had been working for a sports magazine called triathlete magazine where I covered the swim, bike, run, uh, event. And, uh, I got, I got let go there in, uh, 
well, I think it was June of 91, and I did some freelancing for a while. And then I got into uh, Roller Hockey Magazine as an editor. Um, and um, that would have been, I was there for about, God, I'm going to say a year, year and a half before I was asked to take a job for a company called uh, Sports and Fitness Publishing out of uh, Boulder, Colorado and uh, create a, actually a competing publication to Roller Hockey Magazine, which was called Inline Hockey News. So I was writing about the sport when um, it was just uh, amateur play. Um, the covers of the magazine would be of guys playing roller hockey at the beach, for example, all guys that I knew. And uh, it was actually called Street Hockey when I came on board, Street Hockey Magazine, and I convinced them that... Uh, they had to change the name to roller hockey because it was just obvious that that was the way things were going. There had been people playing out in the street with tennis shoes and stuff for a long time and in places like Canada where I grew up. And that was another connection. My um, love for hockey um, had been born <laughs> in, in me in Canada and my family moved to California in 1968. So um, I was one of the guys that would be like just uh, skate when rollerblades first came out, I would, skate around in Venice Beach, which is just uh, south of Santa Monica, uh, at night with a hockey stick and a, and a ball, and just, it would be embarrassing to do it in the daytime. <laughs> and uh, so I was there, I was positioned for when um, Dennis Murphy got his idea to start Roller Hockey International, and David McLean got his idea to start uh, another league that was similar, but was based in one location in uh, um, Disney World in Florida. And, um, eventually those two leagues merged, um, McLean came to RHI, but I'm getting ahead of the story a little bit. Well, sure. So, but it, it seems to me that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, that's uh, Southern California in particular, the beach communities, a la Venice and maybe Santa Monica and, and uh, who knows, probably a bunch of others was almost the, um, I don't know, the, the birth or the cradle of this sort of inline skating plus the beach kind of thing. Is that, is that fair to say? I think it's very fair to say, and um, we had we had six or seven different games going on in the parking lot in Santa Monica. Um, we had the two best surfaces uh, we called A court and B court, um, and occasionally somebody would park in the middle, and then they'd come back from the beach and go, "Hey, would you mind moving your car to the edge?" And most people were fine with moving their cars because they didn't want to get dinged with the ball, <laughs> and. Uh, we we had people coming, you know, uh, let's say people come, come from different countries to uh, visit uh, California, and then they happened to see what's going on, and they could go pair a, borrow a, a rent, inline uh, skates, roller hockey skates, and join us. So I remember uh, people from Switzerland and Sweden and Canada and uh, France all joining us in playing um, in the kind of the international language of hockey. You didn't really need to... Uh, speak too much except say, Hey, pass me the ball. (laughs) And, uh, we had such great fun, but there were times when there were six or seven different games going on different parts of the parking lot. And it was just, just huge. And, uh, that's when, um, you know, Dennis and David McLean both got their ideas to, uh, get into the sport professionally. David said he saw kids playing, uh, in Santa Monica where I played and Dennis saw kids playing in the street. On, on inline hockey skates or roller skates, uh, kind of you can use both terms. And um, he asked the kids, "What did they call what they're doing?" And he, they said, "Roller hockey." 
And he thought, man, this could be a great idea for professional sport. Sport, and as I, as you know, he had done several leagues previous to that, so he he kind of had a feeling and and a, 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 an insight into what could possibly work. Well, let's get into that a little bit because uh, obviously you're sort of in a unique position, both geographically as well as uh, career-wise, right? Because you're a scribe, uh, you're you're focused with uh, these. Uh, back in the day, when uh, actual uh, uh, monthly, uh, uh, you know, interest magazines uh, existed, right, and was kind of like the main source of information about things, um, you know, it seems like you were uh, well positioned to kind of uh, be uh, eyes and ears for sort of this sort of bigger picture that was developing. But based on, and obviously, hence the book, right? Uh, ultimately, um, right. So, give me a sense from what, from your understanding, your reporting, your. Uh, knowledge and uh, uh, understanding of Dennis Murphy, right? So first of all, in your mind, your words, who is who is Dennis Murphy uh, for those uh, uninitiated uh, in our audience, which which may, hopefully is not the case because we, we certainly have made allusions to uh, Mr. Murphy, almost one of the kings, I guess, if you will, of challenger and forgotten leagues. Um, and maybe then we can segue into how you think he sort of stumbled across uh, this phenomenon, I guess, of inline skating and putting the, you know, his background and that phenomenon in, into, uh, into action. Well, he had been involved with, uh, the world hockey association as a, as a co-founder, um, and the American basketball association, um, long before, uh, he, he got into uh, roller hockey. So he knew everyone. Um, uh, he was a, part owner of this, uh, LA, um, I don't know, I think he's part of the LA sharks that played in the, uh, uh, Los Angeles sports arena, um, uh, for a, for the WHA. And, um, he also had, I think he had some part ownership in one of the teams in, in, in the ABA. So he knew people from not only professional sports, but, uh, politics because he had been the mayor of Buena Park uh, for a couple of years. So he knew all the top stars in the leagues. Uh, he was friends with Gordie Howe, for example, and uh, Bobby Hall in hockey and Julius Irving and uh, all the top stars in basketball, um, you know, Jerry West. And of course, uh, Jerry Buss, who owned the Los Angeles Lakers, um, was a good friend of his. And, um, Again, I might get ahead of myself a little bit here, but uh, he asked Jeannie Buss to, uh, uh, that, that he told her that they were going to start a team, uh, Los Angeles Blades, and he wanted her to run it. <laughs> she was kind of taken aback, but uh, his, his knowledge of everybody in uh, American sports and uh, in politics really stood him in good stead. Yeah, well, it's also interesting, too, because uh, obviously he had uh, been responsible for uh, either wholly or partially for uh, not only uh, the WHA and the ABA, uh, topics that we've talked about in previous episodes, including people like Pat Boone uh, talking about how Dennis Murphy was instrumental in getting him or convincing him to be one of the first owners of an ABA team. And it frankly almost wrecked him uh, both emotionally and then certainly financially. Uh, but yep. but he's, of course, have said he wouldn't have uh, done, it, done it any other way, but also world team tennis, right, which. Uh, you know that uh, 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 Dr. Buss was uh, very much uh, behind and involved in it. And my sense is that Jeannie, who was obviously in our uh, ever-growing shortlist of people to talk to, was almost like, um, I want to say her pet project from uh, from Jerry, but the idea of uh, of truly uh, getting her, uh, 
her stripes, if you will, in running something professional uh, in and around the forum uh, through the RHI and uh, and what Murphy was bubbling up here. Well, that's exactly right. And she's someone that you definitely have to speak to. Uh, did you say you already had or you still want to? No, she's on the list. And uh, I've actually promoted her Audible book in some of our uh, our advertising because she does have an Audible book uh, about her life story, but to have not reached out. But I will follow up after this okay. conversation for sure. Good, because I have her information for you and she'd love to talk to you. She's very, very friendly that way and, and open. And she did love uh, the Blades and in, in, in the league. Um, she... Uh, exactly uh, did use it as uh you know she had been involved with world team tennis and and knew uh, certain things but uh, uh i don't know that she ran the team uh, out of la the tennis team but uh she sure did run the blades and uh she was one of the top two three leaders in in the sport in terms of ownership and how their team was viewed by the public uh, just a, a you know professional class uh, all the way and uh, people have the greatest respect for her um, knowledge uh, ability um, insights she uh, she brought a lot to roller hockey international and um, there's uh, one some fun stories in the book uh, about her and um, uh, her kind of head, head conflicts with uh, the, the ownership of the Anaheim Bullfrogs, which were the uh, the greatest rival <laughs> to the Blades in Southern California at the time, um, some fun stories, um, and uh, she could probably give you a lot of insight into that that sort of thing. Well, so hopefully this episode will uh, prove worthy of uh, of that introduction. Um, so let me ask you this: so how does how does a guy like Murphy who Depending on your perspective, with e- was has either have a, a huge track record of success or uh, checkered uh, uh, history of uh, of pockmarked uh, uh, failures, right? With leagues right. and you know, I mean, you know, the ABA successful in uh, ultimately forcing a merger and changing the dynamics of uh, pro basketball with the NBA. Yeah, probably. Uh, World team tennis, yeah, intriguing. Uh, open up uh, opportunities for other players and 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 uh, sort of the current uh, or the the then process of, of pro tennis certainly, but it was uh, kind of limping along in sort of a, a second uh, sort of life at by that point. And uh, WHA right, which was itself also successful yet not so. How does somebody like Murphy with that kind of checkered and or um, not checkered but uh, a debatable background convince people? Uh, especially smart ones like arena owners like the bus family, uh, that this inline hockey thing, RHI, is uh, a legit thing. And, uh, oh, believe me, this is going to work. Well, that's an excellent question. And um, Jeannie would probably be a better person to ask that one. But, you know, in terms of specific uh, getting teams to uh, or owners to buy teams, but in general, I think it's because he had the gift of gab. Um, he sold, he was a good salesman and, uh, he was very adept at bringing, uh, various types of people together, uh, to, to fulfill uh, a dream that he had. And he, I think on the other side of it, there were people who were business owners that wanted to be involved with sports. Uh, let's say if you, you ran a widget company, it's, it's you make a lot of money perhaps, but it's not very exciting. And, uh, here's a way to hobnob with, uh, star athletes and, and, uh, the, the fans and the, 
and politicians, everybody was, you know, attracted to the sport. I remember, um, you know, that it was hugely popular once it got going, RHI. Um, and there were 12 teams that first year and then they expanded to 24. So he, in, he got people excited about the possibilities. And I think a lot of them really didn't go in fully informed of what it could cost them. And uh, a lot of them did get burned. So when you talk about kind of spotty record with teams coming and going, that's definitely true. And I wouldn't say there's a sucker born every, every minute, but there's a, a budding sports entrepreneur born every second. And, and those people want to have their uh, hands in uh, a professional sports team. And uh, so th- there was fertile ground for uh, Murph's ideas. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's uh, clearly a theme that uh, <clears throat> has bubbled up on a number of different occasions in different sort of forms and facets, right? Uh, in our little journey into these kinds of things, there are, it always seems to be, and by the way, it seems to keep regenerating, right? So, to, you know, we got two new football leagues apparently starting up next year, one in the spring and, and the, the rebirth of the XFL the following year. Uh, you know, this just seems to be that no shortage of, I don't know, call them big boys and their toys or big or just people, uh, frankly, now, uh, women as well. Thank goodness, uh, with, with, you know, with the it's a heady mixture of, of ego and excitement. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it sort of certainly cures boredom for perhaps how they uh, originally got their money and, you know, uh, you know a play toy or play thing. Um, so let me um, let me sort of uh, get some sense of how you think or what what was your sort of vision or, or understanding of how the pieces came together uh, to kind of get players and these arenas? I mean, I think around this time, too, we've had a couple of conversations around uh, another sports league uh, in that uh, that period of time in the 90s that uh, from a business perspective, I think you were hinting at it, uh, was designed in some form to uh, fill arenas during the summer. That's uh, the Continental Indoor Soccer League um, playing a summer schedule. Um, I suspect that a little bit of the RHI pixie dust was uh, helping some of these uh, arena owners fill some uh, gaps during the uh, the lull, I guess, of uh, of the summertime when arenas are looking for stuff uh, beyond just concerts and uh, waiting for the hockey and basketball seasons to start up again. Well, that's very accurate. And um there are also uh, venues that were created specifically for RHI. There's a, a couple of outdoor rinks that teams played on. Uh, the the Utah Rollerblades played on an outdoor rink, and uh, uh, there's a game up in uh, Sacramento where they experimented with an outdoor league, and it was at night, so the lights were attracted to the the bugs were attracted to the lights and then they'd fall onto the court, and then the players would roll over them and squish them, and they'd be slipping and sliding. On the bugs and Jeannie Buss said it was just a disaster. <laughs> so not only was it good for filling uh, arenas uh, in the summertime, but it also created uh, venues that eventually were, uh, you know, either covered or or uh, not used anymore. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was it was a heady time, and uh, it just seemed like the sky was the limit for professional roller hockey uh, in the early days. Where uh, where is uh, where is the idea coming from? Where are the players coming from? 
Uh, we've got some, obviously, some strong arena owners and some people behind it. Uh, centrally owned, or is it a franchise model? Maybe some of the basics of, of how you sort of uh, in, uh, see this, uh, saw this thing coming together, or Murphy saw this. Well, it, yeah, it was a franchise model, and um, they sold uh, franchises for a, a nominal fee when they first started. Um, I'm thinking it was $25,000 a team. Um, and then to get the players, it was originally thought that, uh, especially by the guys that I played with at the beach, that they'd be some of the, the pro players and a few of them were, but what, uh, Chris, I mean, uh, yeah, Chris McSorley of the Anaheim Bullfrogs realized that very first summer that they played, um, was that the minor league ice hockey players would be better once they learn to skate on wheels than the guys that were playing pickup roller hockey at the beach because this was a full contact league and they would be hitting. And I remember stories of guys that I knew that played roller hockey at the beach that would go in for a, a tryout and just get wrecked with a, a hard check and, and not even go back. So I think that uh, once McSorley made that decision, and people started catching on the next uh, next year, the, the first year they went to the league undefeated and were the champions. Um, soon the other teams picked up on that, and they started uh, getting players from the American Hockey League and Central Hockey League and all these different ice hockey leagues um, where the guys could make a certain chunk of change during the summer where normally they might have to go home and work at their, their father's uh, farm or, or in a you know, meat packing plant, things like that, that people had to do, um, you know, pro, you know, minor pro hockey players back, back then. And, uh, so some of these guys were making eight, 10 grand for a summer playing a sport and traveling around the United States and Canada. How was, uh, how was that, uh, those, how were those salaries, uh, derived? My, uh, my understanding is that there was a bit of, uh, some innovation, I guess, if you will, in terms of, uh, how the players got compensated a little bit or maybe a lot of it based on uh, performance and or uh, winning in competition versus sort of straight salary? It, was there any uniqueness that you knew or could tell about uh, how the uh, the players were, I guess, inexpensively compensated? Well, they were supposedly being paid, uh, i trying to think of, it's been such a long time, my gosh, 93 when they had that first R8 size season. What are we talking now? <laughs> 25 years? Um, but they did have a, a, a salary structure, a pay per play, you know, per game, uh, that the players got, but, uh, guys like McSorley and others quickly found that if they paid some of the players under the table, uh, they, they'd really pique their interest. I remember one guy saying, I'm not going to pay play for this much a week and I'm, I'm too good. <laughs> and, and if the, teams wanted that player they would have to pay them under the table and that was a uh, definitely an issue um for the teams that didn't want to do that they wanted to follow the rules um eventually other teams had to do that uh, to, to to compete so some of the players might have been ostensibly supposed to make uh four grand that summer and ended up making like 10 for example so how rampant was that sort of under the table stuff and i can't imagine that that would uh I don't know, aid in the stability, uh, given that certain franchises might be more capable of doing such things versus others. Right. It, it was definitely a, a boon to the 
teams that had a solid, a more solid financial background um, than some of the guys that came in um, and didn't have the deep pockets. Uh, I think that uh, Jeannie Buss was saying the, the league needed to go for 10 years for anybody to even think of making, uh, making much money. And, and, and her idea was that the kids that were 15 and 16 years old that were a huge part of the fan base at that time would uh, be you know 26 uh, or 28 and then have kids of their own. And those kids would grow up being roller hockey players and roller hockey fans and, and build the sport from the ground up. And uh, it did have a negative impact um, when teams would come and go because they couldn't uh, – they couldn't afford to uh, play under those circumstances. So how about the rules? Um, what were the rules that were uh, being thrown in front of these uh, potential and then uh, ultimately current uh, then, then players? Because uh, they were obviously different, uh, somewhat substantially and actually in some cases not so, uh, from the, uh, the traditional ice hockey uh, game that we all kind right. of know and grew up with. Well, ice hockey, as you know, has the center red line and then the two blue lines separating the court into, uh, you know, offensive zone, defensive zone, and uh, neutral ground in, in, in between the two blue lines. And um, the RHI did away with blue lines, and all you had to do was, uh, um, for at the beginning, if I'm not mistaken, you had to carry the puck across the uh, the red line before you could pass it um, so it wouldn't have a lot of cherry picking. And... They also had four skaters and a goalie rather than five skaters as in ice hockey, which opened the court more and uh, made it for a higher scoring game. I mean, some of the games early on were like 13 to seven, whereas in ice hockey, you know, most scores would have been along the lines of four to two or five to three or one to nothing or even more shutouts. What would you, would fact, you attribute, I'm sorry, would you attribute that to uh, uh, the, that open space or, or is it maybe because the inline skates were a little bit easier to sort of control, say, versus skating on ice or, or what other factors maybe would, that helped, uh, would you say, open up the scoring more so than regular? Well, I, I, I think that um, getting rid of the blue line uh, stopped that offsides rule that stopped play all the time. So there was continuous play, um, and I think that the open space did mean a lot. So uh, you could make long passes um, and get guys open for breakaways and things like that. Um, it's a very good question. I think about why was it so high scoring? You know, they wanted it to be um, for the fans. They didn't want you know one nothing games, and fortunately they never got them. There was only one shutout as far as I'm aware in the entire history of the league. Uh, and uh, that was a guy from Calgary, Calgary rads played one year and happened to get a shutout. And uh, so there was more scoring, but that's a good question. I have to think about that a little bit more. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Uh, the puck was also different too. Wasn't that lighter and a little bit more zippy, I guess, perhaps than a regular uh, black uh, uh, ice hockey puck. Right, and because most of the teams played on either a plastic sport court or concrete, uh, a regular ice hockey puck would not uh, glide along the surface as well as the puck that was created for the league, which had little nibs on it or little uh, um, protrusions to uh, lift the body of the puck off the court a little bit so there was a little bit of airflow there, just like uh, the air hockey game 
you know, in a sense, uh, where you've got that little bit of air underneath the puck, it makes it go. Uh, whereas on the ice, you know, it's, it's, it's sliding on ice. So um, that is a way to create a puck for the league that was proprietary and um, supposed to uh, gain income for the league, um, the entire league, and go to the teams. But unfortunately, that was another error on the part of the leadership of RHI, and they they let uh, one man take the lead on that, and he put the Bucks patent in his own name rather than the league's, and that caused a huge rift and a lot of problems over the years. Interesting. Well, so uh, that seems a little similar to uh, to the old ABA basketball approach that uh, perhaps exactly. Yep. Very interesting. I think so- Murphy. Uh, yeah, I think Dennis Murphy said that was uh, probably the biggest mistake that he made, and uh, it just I, well, I was the hardest chapter I had to write in my book because Alex Bellhumer, who was the, one of the co-founders, the four of the guys that uh, put the league together initially. Uh, man, I, I got to be careful how you talk about certain people um, because the, the, some people are too happy. And I actually wrote the chapter and then sent it to him, and he just went over and over every little single detail. He he argued with everything that I said, and and that I had, you know, I talked to a good chunk of people to get a basic idea of what was going on. And he he said, no, that's not true. And it was a very, it was the most difficult. thing that I had to write in a 360 page book and uh, it caused the most angst for me and obviously for later for him. And uh, it's just a, it's a black league. I saw a black mark on the league and it's just a shame because that was one of the things that uh, Jeannie Buss says in her intro to my book, she wrote the forward uh, and in her own book, Laker girl, where she talks about a, a man who, did that put the puck in his own name uh, reaped uh, over a million dollars in benefits uh, to himself that could have gone to the league and had kept it afloat yeah that's interesting it's also interesting too because it's also in many cases that to talk about that's that is true sports innovation right i mean way ahead of its time that idea of getting yes. something proprietary that could be an ongoing annuity if you will but it also though was a bet i guess on uh i guess what the thought was was going to be sort of a a long-term uh, uh, growth and boom in this inline skating thing generally, right? And the desire at the uh, the kid and street level uh, to emulate uh, what was uh, starting on the professional ranks with uh, with roller hockey as a, as a sport. Oh, it's absolutely right. And those pucks sold like hotcakes, and they weren't they weren't cheap. Uh, I remember some of them. I think five to seven bucks, where you get a hockey puck for fifty cents. You know, ice hockey puck, but uh, um, they they sold over the course of the years, many, many thousands of those pucks. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I could look them up and tell you later. Um, But that was a big uh, income stream. And uh, it was sadly diverted, largely diverted. All right, just when it was getting interesting, Let's uh, let's put the brakes on this conversation just for a minute, shall we? Uh, but I do want to tell you about uh, our friends at MyBookie. Uh, and uh, we are in the midst of, uh, of a pro and college football season. And boy, oh boy, it's the time uh, when uh, the wagerers come out. And um, 
you know, I, I, I have no divine insight into who's going to win games. I certainly have my hunches, uh, especially in the college game, which I follow a little bit more closely than the pro game, believe it or not. Uh, but look, if you think you know and uh, and you're looking for an excuse to uh, to get online and maybe take advantage of some of uh, of the uh, good wagering and the winnings to be had, well, you got to check out my bookie, our friends, my bookie. That's mybookie.ag. And uh, indeed, uh, they are probably the best uh, in the business. They've been in business for years. They've got a ton of great reviews online, and they've got a really easy-to-use mobile site. Um, and look, the idea is uh, uh, pretty straightforward, right? You're looking for a decent and well-lit place uh, to do your betting, and you want good customer service. Well, MyBookie's got you covered. MyBookie.ag. They've got in-game live betting, uh, over-unders on fantasy points scored. Uh, and, and by all accounts, the most rewarding player perks in the business. And look, it's because it's football season, they've been slammed with new orders, new betters, new people uh, getting the deposits online. And they've got an extra bonus uh, for our listeners that I'd love you to check out. So as you may remember from previous episodes, the basic uh, benefit uh, that is available to you when you use the promo code SEATS, uh, you will get a dollar for dollar match. Uh, on uh, on your initial deposit all the way up to a thousand bucks so meaning if you put in a thousand bucks they're going to give you a thousand dollars of credit in addition to that so that's basically doubling your uh doubling your money that you can put to work and that's a that's a good deal in and of itself now ain't it however uh, if you're willing to wait until after seven o'clock eastern time because they are so slammed with uh, with orders that are and, and uh and deposits coming in if you can wait till after seven o'clock eastern time and you can adjust your promo code to add the number 25 that is seats 25 you will get an addition 25 bucks uh, assuming your uh, your initial deposits over 100 you're gonna get 25 extra bucks uh to play so that's uh you know that's a double uh, word score if you will if you're sort of scrabbleizing uh life uh and that is uh all from our friends at my bookie it's mybookie.ag where you can enter the promo code SEATS25 after 7 o'clock Eastern Time and get not only the dollar-for-dollar dollar match up to $1,000 for your uh, from your initial deposit, but also an extra $25, bucks, uh, assuming that your initial deposit's over $100, uh, to your account. So it's uh, it's your choice. you got uh, sort of uh, uh, two ways to kind of uh, incentivize yourself to get involved uh, and uh, enjoy uh, that uh, courtesy of us and our friends at MyBookie, that's mybookie.ag. Uh, you play, you win, you get paid. All right, that's the tagline. We love it, and uh, we love them. Thanks you, thanks so much uh, to MyBookie, and uh, thank you for continuing to listen. And uh, here is the, our two of our conversation. Well, give our audience a sense of uh, of the uh, of the actual play. Uh, you mentioned there was a, um, I guess, uh, an inequality in surfaces. I, I find it, I guess, twenty five years later, right in hindsight, but I find it hard to believe that uh, players would agree to play on actual concrete, uh, smooth as it might be. Um, you know, I, you just, you know, certain, uh, outdoor pro players or, or even indoor soccer players, right. You know, playing on, you know, what, what is derisively called over the years as fuzzy concrete right now, obviously uh, those surfaces have gotten better over time. Uh, but, uh, sounds a little dangerous to, 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 to me. Um, I, I guess I could see sort of, I guess, a a, a, a covered 
sort of flat surface without ice, but I, the concrete purely seems a little seems a little risky to me. Well, I think that it only happened in the first year or so, and I think that uh, it might have been mandated that the teams had to have the plastic sport court uh, after the first year. Again, it's <laughs> it's going back a ways in my memory bank, but I don't think that the players really minded. Um, there were times when, uh, uh, you know, they would fall, but they were, you know, they're padded up by a hockey player, and, you know, they're pretty well protected, and they're wearing helmets, so... I, I think that they, their enjoyment of the game and the chance to be paid, uh, they would have played on uh, almost any service. They might have complained, but um, it was just too good to pass up. And a lot of these guys would come out from, like, say, Detroit and, and in the Midwest and come out and play. So uh, I don't think that I remember hearing a lot of complaints about, oh, we're going to get hurt on the concrete. I think that uh, they just loved the game and they loved playing it and their enthusiasm was uh, communicable. And I think that the fans uh, were excited um, to see them play um, and learn a lot about uh, minor leagues that, um, you know, I, I hadn't followed the minor league hockey very much. I know a lot of hockey people do and I do more now. I'm a season ticket holder for the San Diego Gulls, for example. Um, but I didn't know about a lot of these uh, teams and their histories. And uh, I get to meet some of these players and talk to them over the years. And all oh, great guys, you know, 99 out of 100 of them were just great guys and fun to talk to and had a million stories. Uh, if read my book, uh, that was one of the things that I wanted to get across was just the pure joy of, the play and the fun stories after the games and uh, guys a lot of times would go out to a, a restaurant after the game and the fans would be there and they'd mingle and uh, it was good times. It was a, a lot of fun and guys at the magazines that I worked with thought really thought the sky was the limit and we were kind of taken a little bit unaware because we didn't know perhaps that you know some teams were kind of had a, a built-in advantage uh, or were paying players under the table or things like that right off the bat. And um, it just seemed like, okay, yeah, some teams are dropping off, but they were in, in small uh, venues and, and didn't have the backing, the financial backing. Um, and we thought that, okay, you start with 10 teams and then, uh, they, they made a mistake. I actually had 12 teams. They started with 12 teams and then they jumped to 24 the next year. And, and a lot of people say, tell Murph that was a mistake that they expanded too fast. But he said they needed those franchise fees from the second year to keep the league going. And I'm sure that that's accurate. Well, look, we've heard that story in that line before, right? Where, um, and this is the battle of the constant tension between uh, the sort of central ownership approach, uh, which obviously uh, makes the uh, the franchise owners more uh, less uh, uh, independent, shall we say, right? It becomes more, but yeah, longer term, it tends to be a better model because you're you're spending time nurturing, you know, one for all, all for one, something over a, a period of time that could be strengthened and possibly then, um, you know, separated into actual franchises, but. That wasn't Murph's history, right? I mean, ABA, the uh, 
the uh, the WHA. I, I, I'm a little less knowledgeable about how the uh, the structure worked in, in World Team Tennis, but I assume it was fairly similar where franchise fees made up, you know, part of the financial model and or uh, to some people's uh, uh, disdain a pyramid scheme, right, to keep the dollars coming in while you tried to build something underneath it. And um, I don't know. It also seems like he's probably trying to uh, continue to take advantage of this uh, of this general uh, inline uh, skating craze that uh, was uh, you know part of the, the 1990s culture at the time. Well, I think you stated it very accurately, very well. Um, that's that's all true, and um, you kind of look at it two ways. Okay, maybe it was a bit of a Ponzi scheme, but would have it been as successful as it was over the course of the five or six years that the league ran if <clears throat> that hadn't been the way they did it. Um, you know, I think that people would say at the time, gosh, you know, it's too bad that Bill Gates doesn't just buy the league and, and, and run it the right way. Well, he wasn't interested, <laughs> you know, and so it was done the way it was because that's how Murph had operated in the past. It, it worked to a, to a good degree. I mean, when uh, WHA was founded, players left the NHL and, and got a, a huge pay raise right off the bat. And um, that help the league get uh, its notoriety with the, you know, Bobby Hall signing the million dollar contract and, and Gordy Howe coming over and things like that. It really gave the league uh, some instant credibility at the same time where they had these weak franchises that couldn't last a, a, a season. So uh, there's definitely positive and, and negatives to the approach that Murphy and his, uh, his partners uh, chose. Yeah, so many questions. Uh, you mentioned sort of the uh, uh, almost like the lunch pail, I guess, nature of, of a lot of the players, right? Sort of uh, milling around with the with the fans after the games, kind of thing. And I think it's also probably we've talked about this a little bit with the um, with the founder of the Arena Football League, uh, Jim Foster, over over a number of different conversations. And you know, it's almost like it, they're more relatable some of these players, right? Because they are while they're not making a ton of dough, they are you know they're they're um, you know they're out there uh, playing out for the fans. But then then you know because they're not you know, in these gigantic salaries and sort of this uh, rarefied air, I guess, professionally, uh, they can, uh, the, it's something that the fans uh, can relate to and uh, arguably keep coming back to and, uh, and, and, and get behind, especially given its nascency as a sport. Oh, that's, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, one thing that Jeannie Buss did was uh, had the players after the game uh, sign autographs at a table in the court and people could come down onto the court and uh, get autographs at the players at the tables. And one of the players said, I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm a professional and I'm a star and I don't need to do this. And she said, well, okay, what we'll do is we'll take your number off your back and no one will know who you are and they won't want your autograph. And uh, I'll solve that. <laughs> he quickly backed down and signed his autograph. Uh, she's, she's a very, very smart woman. And uh, so it was accessible. Um, and then some of these guys, they would come down um, at the beach and play uh, pickup roller hockey with us. So uh, Steve Bogievis of the Los Angeles Blades and uh, um, Stefan Desjardins, who played for a couple different teams, um, were guys that had played with us down at the beach. Um, and they were our friends. And so we went to watch some of our friends uh, play uh, pro roller hockey and uh, it was a blast. I mean, I never personally had any dreams of playing in the league. I was, you know, I, I was in love with hockey from 
you know, early age, but I never was a, all that good. So I didn't have any kind of uh, aspirations to it. So since I wasn't going to play, uh, it sure was fun to watch. And of course I played, you know, the pickup roller hockey for years uh, at the beach and then in, in leagues. And uh, it's a, it was a great, great part of my life. I don't play it right now, partly because uh, I'm in San Diego and I'm on, living on a boat <laughs> and uh, I've got other priorities. I'm just painting the boat. It took me forever. I, I recently painted the top and uh, I want to try to buff out the sides <laughs> next. So I've got other focuses now, but that was just a wonderful time in my life. And I always enjoy hearing people who read my book saying, gosh, it's the Bible of pro roller hockey. And uh, nobody's ever really written another book on that sport um, because I think I covered it well enough that there's not really a need. So I'm proud of the book and uh, I'm proud of my time in the sport. I'm still friends with Dennis Murphy. I see him, oh, once a month or so uh, up uh, where he lives up in, near the Anaheim area. I'm down in San Diego. So it takes me a couple hours to get up there and visit with him. We have lunch. Um, sometimes we'll bring in other people who uh, were involved in his leagues and, uh, and chat. And uh, he's still, still sharp. Um, he's just about 91 years old though now. What, what, um, give me a sense of uh, how do you, what was your perception of the NHL's opinion uh, of this league? Uh, uh, and maybe, uh, some of their players possibly playing in it. Was there any relationship or acknowledgement or anything visceral well, between the two? There was. Some of the more uh, forward-looking NHL teams, um, like the Vancouver Canucks, uh, had a guy named Joe Carboneau, um who played in the league and was a leading scorer. And the way they looked at it was that he would get a great uh, physical uh, conditioning during the summer and come right into training camp ready to go where uh, in the past a lot of the NHL players would pretty much take the whole summer off and come in out of shape and play themselves into shape during the preseason and this didn't happen a lot anymore once the, the, they started bringing an influx of some of these guys that were ice and inline hockey players I think their emphasis was still on the ice but they'd had a good time playing in uh, in the summers in RHI and uh, I think think that, you know, like the uh, Vancouver Canucks, um, they would have connections with the local team and Vancouver, it was the voodoo. And uh, eventually they, they bought uh, the team. So um, some of the forward looking uh, people in NHL like the idea, but then you've got uh, the Neanderthals or the people that don't like to see change. And they just thought it was a dumb knockoff of uh, ice hockey and they didn't want anything to do with it. Um, but there were some forward looking people in the league that made certain things like, uh, uh, NHL breakout, which was summer roller hockey events where, uh, be a tournament format and you'd have kids from six years old up to adults playing and, and winning championships in their, in their individual divisions. I played in those, uh, several times in Santa Monica and once in San Jose, and it was just a blast. Uh, I remember getting a hat trick and one of my teammates throwing his, helmet out in the rig. <laughs> so um, it was just, just a great, great time, Timothy. So uh, how about some of the names of these franchises? And I'll get into some of the better ones and the, and the weaker ones in a minute. But um, I, you, again, the timing, you know, this is around the time of ESPN2, right? And it's sort of the action sports thing and the beginnings were the 
the the primordial ooze, I guess, if you will, of things like the X Games and uh, you know those kinds of kinds of things becoming more mainstream. But uh, my oh my, some of these uh, logos and names of teams. I mean, I, I'm just coming up with a. I mean, Minnesota Blue Ox. Okay, that seems somewhat, uh, but um, you know, the Den- the Denver Daredevils, the uh, the Calgary Rads. That's R A D apostrophe Z. Right, right. What 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 was the uh, was there any sort of coherent uh, thinking behind uh, these names and these logos and stuff? It was obviously trying to attract, I guess, a certain type of action fan. Yeah, I think they were going after the the kids to a, a large extent, uh, teenagers and even younger, uh, with names like that. I don't know that uh, uh, the league had much to say about how a team was going to be named. I don't know that they could have, but uh, they tried. The teams tried to do things uh, in a regional manner if they could. The, there was the Edmonton Sled Dogs, for example, and um, the you know, um, Long Island Jaws and, um, you know, Buffalo Stampede was just funny. <laughs> People thought it was more like wings. <laughs> that would be a better connection. There was a Buffalo Wings later in a, in a league. But, um, yeah, they they had some fun names and, and, and fun teams and uh, some logos that were better than others. I thought that some were fairly juvenile. Um but some of the good ones uh, I would put up against uh, uh, a lot of the uh, NHL um, uh, logos. Uh, the Pittsburgh Phantoms had a really neat logo, and the uh, LA Blades was very sharp and clean, as was the San Jose Rhinos with a charging rhino. And then you had the Vancouver Voodoo, and had a you know kind of a, a witch doctor with a hockey stick at the top <laughs> of the V. Um, and a, and a mask uh, in the middle of the logo, um, voodoo-related. So I think that they did a, a, a darn good job. I mean, we'd make fun in the magazines of the different teams that we thought were weak, but we'd praise the, the teams and the names and the logos that we, we liked. And uh, I think that that's one thing that I feel proud about is that we we, we consider ourselves journalists and, and we didn't want to uh, suck up to the, the ownership of the league. And I remember Dennis Murphy getting irritated with me sometimes. He goes, you ask too hard of questions, you know, mellow out. <laughs> and uh, he always, every time he sees me, he says something like that, you know, you're too mean back in the day. Uh, but we wanted to have the league succeed. And uh, so we asked the tough questions sometimes and, uh, Sometimes they weren't appreciated, but we uh, we did our jobs, and um, again, it was uh, it was an honor to be involved. From my perspective, um, I got to meet a lot of great people. Like uh, the commissioner of the league was Ralph Backstrom. He was the rookie of the year, like in the year I was born, um, <laughs> and uh, he was uh, just a very classy gentleman. Really enjoyed meeting him, and then. Um, uh, you'd meet the parents of the players because they'd be at the games in the stands with you. So I met uh, Steve Bogavis, his father, who was a big studly motorcycle rider and had his own interesting stories and things like that. And then the players, uh, a lot of times when they uh, the there were different world championships tournaments that they'd play in, and they played in a couple in, in Anaheim, and I would go and hang out with the players, uh, you know, after the game, and they'd drinking beers and playing guitars and just having a, uh, having a blast, so um, it was one of the high points of my career. 
Give me a sense of the uh, of some of the teams that uh, were, uh, in your mind, uh, the strongest and uh, and most uh, solid and stable, and maybe a few examples of some of the more, shall we say, comical or uh, ill-fated or ill-advised uh, that you can remember. You mentioned Anaheim. They seem to yeah. be one of the stellar ones, no? Yes, they were. Um, they had uh, pretty solid ownership uh, with some money behind them. Um, they knew how to market the sport. Uh, they really promoted their first game at the uh, Anaheim uh, Arena, which became known as the Pond um, before uh, it became Honda Center. Um, and before that, it was uh, Arrowhead Pond. So, But people would call it the Pond. And that was before the uh, Anaheim um, Mighty Ducks came into the league. That was the summer before that. So uh, it was funny, you know, guys would come getting ready to play in that first year uh, for Anaheim Mighty Ducks, and people would go, oh, you guys the roller hockey players? And they go, no, what are you talking about? But uh, I think that Anaheim was one of the stronger franchises L.A. was because they had the financial uh, backing. Um, the San Jose Rhinos uh, were a solid team. Um, but then you had teams like uh, the Connecticut Coasters who um, played in, a, in an old arena, uh, didn't have much financial backing. I think that they didn't really have an owner, so the league propped them up, and that only lasted uh, one season. Um, the Portland Rage uh, had a good team, but um, didn't have the financial wherewithal to uh, continue more than, um, I think, one or two years. Um, there was a team in Oklahoma, had a couple different names. Um, if you didn't have deep pockets as an owner, you were going to lose your shirt. And uh, a lot of these guys did, unfortunately. Yeah, well, that seems to be always the the issue too. It's like, well, I can you know, I can afford a franchise uh, low cost fee, but I'm not necessarily uh, certain I'm going to be able to cover the uh, the cost during the year. And uh, and obviously, they tend to be more uh, costly than uh, than originally envisioned. You mentioned uh, sort of this expansion. I mean, twelve teams to start the uh, the 1993 season, and then doubling to 24. I mean, by all right. accounts, right? That is that is just supremely aggressive. Um, how much was uh, was television, as far as you remember, part of this mixture? I know ESPN2 was sort of coming online, so to speak. Uh, and I know that uh, there was a little bit of coverage in that first year, I think including, um, it wasn't the first ever game at the league, I think it was the second, the day after at the Anaheim Pond, the, the their opening game. Uh, how much do you know, uh, what, was any of that driven by uh, television and or desire for a national footprint, or do you think it was just a money uh, a grab, so to speak, to kind of keep the league going and uh, uh, on the the the, the uh, illusion, perhaps, that uh, it was successful and growing fast. No, I think that it was uh, something that uh, David McLean brought to the league. He had the connection with ESPN, uh, with his World Roller Hockey League, WRHL, that played in uh, Florida, like I said, at Disney World. And they played in one venue, and they had it uh, taped by ESPN. Um, I can't remember if ESPN2 was even on uh, around at the time. Um, so when his league folded he came to the rhi and he brought the television connection with him and so they did have good uh tv coverage um i remember there was a canada u.s exhibition game uh, the summer before the league started and it had uh coverage and luke robitaille was one of the announcers uh, a player for the la kings and um 
the next year they had uh, a lot of the games would uh, would have been on TV. I can't remember if it was the second year, uh, a bit more than the first, but um, that was something that we'd all watch and talk about. And uh, ESPN did a very good job um, uh, of covering the league and making the players into personalities. And they had uh, Jim Fox uh, on the, on the shows uh, with Craig Minervini as a play-by-play announcer. And Jim would do the, the color commentary on, uh, for example, a championship game. Uh, between the San Jose Rhinos and the Montreal Roadrunners one summer. Uh, it was very well done. And um, they had a good opportunity to uh, keep that going. But um, I think with the teams coming and going, uh, there's some issues. And, um, you know, uh, there was various – I think some of the teams would – Hi, uh, pay uh, like, like a local sponsor that would conflict with the national sponsor, and and that really turned ESPN off. I think that uh, I can't remember if it was Pepsi was uh, the one of the league uh, sponsors, and then the local team you know put Coke around the boards, things like that. So <laughs> there was some short sightedness, and there was you know some wild wild west uh, uh, philosophy along some of the teams. Um, based on your reporting in this book, and it's it's a hoot. The whole thing is a hoot. Um, when Thank you. when did you when did you uh, in your narrative uh, and perhaps maybe through the eyes of the participants when when did the wheels look like they were literally and figuratively starting to come off? Um, what was it as early as that doubling of expansion size in year two or? Uh, um, I I don't before? think at right that point it was. I mean uh, we we. We thought it was exciting. Um, we were thrilled that there were uh, more teams and there'd be more more events to go to. Um, some of the teams that came in that second year were uh, were some of the teams that lasted throughout the league. They they, they lasted longer. Um, so they did replace some weaker franchises with some stronger ones. That was good. But they did uh, uh, you know spread themselves too thin and. Uh, uh, they had different uh, issues, and I think that they lost like something like seven of those 24 teams the next year. So it was feast and famine at the same time, and uh, um, a very, very complicated uh, way to do business. And um, I don't know how it could have been done another way uh, unless you had you know, 12 teams owned by millionaires or multimillionaires were willing to lose money for, for several years before you brought in new teams and you wouldn't need those new franchise fees. Um, but I think that, you know, a lot of the owners maybe lost 300 grand in the first year, weren't all that excited about losing 500 grand the second year and, uh, you know, took off. And so, but that would probably be the, the weakest element of my knowledge of the league is the, the financial dealings it was you know something that we didn't delve into all that much uh, we were more interested in the in the in the play on the court well it almost seems too that um you have to think about too where revenues are being derived from right so i mean when you're a fledgling league and let's say television isn't uh, uh you know front and center or at least uh envisioned as part of the the roadmap i'm sure tv was but uh i think it took a couple of years to really sort of get on a semi-regular fixture on an ESPN2 or or something along those lines. But, I mean, you know, there's things like regional games and radio broadcasts and all those. I mean, those are ancillary revenue streams, right, that uh, can, uh, uh, you know, make up for 
perhaps four or 5,000 people rattling around a stadium. Now, obviously, Anaheim doing better than that, but there were certainly a whole bunch of, uh, of teams that were maybe at that or even below that on certain nights. Uh, well, you're, actually, you're pay, absolutely right. Right. You can't pay people with, uh, you know, concessions on 2,500 in the stands. No, no, that's true. So uh, some of the teams that couldn't draw for whatever reasons, maybe their location or, or they didn't market well enough, uh, they might have had 2,000 fans at a game. Um, I was fortunate, you know, I lived in L.A., so I would go to most of the games in L.A. and Anaheim, and Anaheim started out that opening night with almost a full house or over 13,000 people. Um, and L.A., uh, they average consistently um, seven, 8,000 people, I think, the first couple of years. Um, and uh, it was, you know, from, from what I saw, it looked like it could do very well. I wasn't living in, in say, Oklahoma or, or Connecticut where they had teams that had, you know, very few fans. So um, we knew they existed, but uh, we thought, oh, okay, well, they'll get shaken out, and, and they did. But a lot of times the teams that came in to replace them uh, weren't on much more solid financial footing. All right, so as we uh, as we round the corner here, give me a sense of uh, if you were to sort of encapsulate what this league was about and, uh, you know, sort of its storyline. I mean, I maybe maybe a little bit of like what what um, I, you know what was its sensibility? It seems like it kind of came and 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 went, and and some of it was sort of born uh, of sort of a, a a fad. Yet it seems to me like there was some real uh, good stuff there, including camaraderie and an exciting game, uh, and uh, you know, uh, filling arenas, which had a nice business element to it. Um, this wasn't all for naught, was it? No, I don't think it was. Uh, a lot of the people that uh, still talk about it um, wish that certain things had been done differently by the league ownership. Uh, the puck is a huge, uh, you know, issue for a lot of people where that money could have gone to the league. Um, I know that uh, Larry King, who was one of the founders with Dennis on World Team Tennis, was just furious that uh, uh, the puck was put in another man's name instead of the leagues. Um, and there was ample revenue from that puck uh, during the years where the, the league was going and, and could have used that money to maybe either prop up uh, some of the weaker teams or, or entice uh, stronger ownership uh, because they were more solid uh, as a league. Um, and it's, it's a real shame. Um, that is an opportunity lost. Opportunity lost, and when you talk to Teeny Bus, she'll be able to really give you a good uh, idea of how that went uh, financially and uh, what went on there. Um, and she's very, very articulate uh, and is a businesswoman. Um, so I'm just a lowly writer, <laughs> but uh, it was. A high time in my life. It's like just before that, um, I'd been in triathlon, and that was a very, very exciting sport to be in. I had the Hawaii Ironman, and that was going gangbusters. So I kind of I felt like I lived in the peak of that sport, and then the peak of uh, uh, roller hockey. Um, you know, two different sports uh, in my my career. That uh, you know, triathlon is still going, but it's an individual sport, um, not the team sport like uh, roller hockey was. So there, there isn't as much 
uh, money to be lost if you're competing in a, in a race, as opposed to trying to put a team together and have an arena and all those sort of things. Um, but uh, both those times in my life were uh, very exciting. Um, I would travel around the world for uh, triathlon. Our magazine had a budget to do that. Uh, the magazines uh, that I was with in, in roller hockey really didn't. So the farthest I would go would be to, say, Vancouver for for uh, an all-star game. Um, but all the same, we had freelancers around the country that were excited and championing at the bit to uh, to sell their stories and photos to the magazines. So um, it worked out quite well um, for a while. And um, there was a faddish aspect to it, no doubt about it. Um, you know, I think hula hoops come to mind. They have a craze and they go. And back in the day, I remember reading about cycling and how huge that would be and then peter out and, and then come back. Well, it'd be nice if roller hockey came back with uh, somebody with some deep pockets and say 12 arenas to start uh, and make it regional and then build that way. Um, but, you know, uh, one of the arguments back in the day was that people especially in Canada, didn't want to be inside uh, on summer nights. They wanted to be out. And um, so some of the Canadian franchises didn't attract uh, some of the, the fans that you'd, you'd hope for. But on the other side of the coin, the Vancouver Voodoo did do well um, with getting people to the arena. So, um, again, it was just a, a fun time for me. I look back at it fondly, and uh, I'm grateful that I had a part in it. All right, one last question. Why? Uh, it's been 25 years. Uh, maybe that's a, somewhat of, a, of an anniversary, I guess, since the founding of uh, and the first puck uh, being dropped. Um, why do you think there uh, hasn't been a revival of it, I guess, on a professional level? I mean, because a lot's changed since then, right? I mean, you mentioned, obviously, people in the summer maybe not wanting to be indoors. Okay, maybe that hasn't changed. But certainly television has, right? Certainly arenas, right. you know, have gotten much more... Um, uh, uh, per, uh, uh, numerous, right? Especially smaller uh, venues that uh, sort of cater to more, let's say, the minor league crowd size and uh, in other events that are not uh, top tier major league, you know, 20,000 seaters. Um, do, you, do you think there's, a, you know, and, and there's no lack of, uh, of uh, action sports, shall we say, the X Games, et cetera, you know, in the mainstream now? I, I You wonder why not, uh, is it's time, you know, perhaps, uh, or, or is the ship sailed? Well, I think that a lot of people have tried in the ensuing years to create uh, pro, they call them, you know pro leagues, the uh, more name than in fact. But there, there were things like the professional inline hockey league and uh, just a, a alphabet soup of acronyms of people who tried to do it, but. Without the deep pockets, it's really tough. And, you know, a lot of these players, if they're not getting paid a good chunk of change, uh, are not willing to risk it for the injury. So the, the quality of the player sometimes is not as good. But there are uh, pockets where um, the sport is still going strong. Um, there's a tournament series called NARCH, the North American Roller Hockey Championships, and they still uh, have, you know, big tournaments around the country. Um, but when RHI started to fail, a lot of the companies that had popped up to create wheels and bearings and things like that for the, the league and for the players, they went under uh, as well. 
Um, so there aren't as many uh, manufacturers. There was con- consolidation in the market. The big fish ate the little fish. So you don't have the, the sponsorship uh, availability that you did back then. But again, it, it came out of the blue, um, and I suppose it could happen again. But, uh, you know, where's the Dennis Murphy that's going to do that? Oh, I, he might be listening to uh, our various episodes here. So let's uh, we'll put it out there to our audience. You never know. I mean, there's uh, you mentioned it you before. never know. That's right. There, there are suckers or uh, <laughs> entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs born yep. every minute. Right. All right. So here's your chance. That's to, right. Here's your chance to promote. Give us the uh, give us all the details about the book and uh, where it can find it. All that kind of good stuff because it's it's a hoot, and I encourage everybody to read it. It's uh, this is a great uh, great story and a great uh, uh, part of uh, hockey and uh, pro sports history for sure. Thank you. Well, it's called Wheelers, Dealers, Pucks and Bucks with a subtitle, A Rocking History of Roller Hockey International. One of the things I'm proud, uh, most proud of it is that I did get Jeannie Bush to write the forward and she wrote a great forward. Uh, and she talked about how she felt the league could have been a, a great long-term success and she misses it. And, uh, you know, I see her occasionally too. We're still friends. Um, and it's, uh, it's a paperback. It's got a colored cover and black and white photos on the inside. It's actually about 328 pages with action photography in the middle and all the team's logos and stats from the first. Oh, let's see. I guess I guess it was the ebook that has the stats. So this book is also in electronic form, Kindle form. It's on Amazon.com. And uh, I think it's selling for about 12 to 15 bucks uh, a copy right now online. And uh, if anybody would like to know the history of Royal Hockey International, that would be the place to go. All right, we thank Richard Neil Graham. I like to call him Rich, but uh, look, if you're looking for the book, uh, make sure that uh, you uh, check out his full name. It's Richard Neil Graham. And uh, the book uh, we uh, have been alluding to that is uh, as rollicking as its title and uh, as some of the hinted stories uh, over the last hour or so uh, may suggest. It's called Wheelers, Dealers, Pucks and Bucks, A Rocking History of Roller Hockey International. And uh, this is, again, a league that uh, ran from 1993 to uh, pretty much the end of the decade, 98, 99 or so. A couple little hiccups in near the uh, the end of uh, its time. And uh, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, uh, component of uh, professional hockey in this country. Uh, you could make the argument that uh, roller hockey uh, on a professional level could indeed succeed again, given the right circumstances, as you heard. Uh, and also, you know, for your completists out there, I want to uh, uh, sort of uh, close the gap here for our uh, for the opening clip that we had on the show. Uh, what you heard there was uh, Craig Minervini and Jim Fox on uh, ESPN. I think uh, for this uh, for the 1996 uh, RHI All Star Game it was on uh, July 8th, 1996, and um, in front of a crowd of 9,406, uh, they saw uh, a, a fun and uh, rollicking. Uh, all-star game uh, with the uh, West ultimately beating the East for the first time in the three years uh, of uh, the All-Star game up until that point uh, by a score of 14 to 12. All right, so we've completed that little uh, history item. And uh, we thank Richard uh, tremendously for uh, for opening up the door to this uh, the story about RHI, Roller Hockey International, that uh, I am certain uh, that we will continue to uh, delve into with hopefully folks like 
uh, Jeannie Buss, uh, who we look forward to uh, chatting with at some point, uh, certainly Dennis Murphy, uh, and hopefully a, a range of other people uh, in this uh, crazy space that we'd love to focus on on this, uh, this little show. Uh, thank you uh, for listening thus far. Uh, we appreciate your listenership. Mike, make sure that you uh, check us out uh, for all of your uh, uh, show uh, interests and uh, background. Make sure you go to goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's the place to go. You'll find out everything that's going on uh, with this little show. You'll find all of our old episodes. You will find links to items that we talk about and mention. Uh, you can purchase books and movies and all that kind of stuff there. We get a little love when you do so, so we appreciate that. That's goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, that's also the place where you can uh, send us some email. You can also do that uh, separately by sending an email to hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you can also follow us and interact with us on social media. On uh, Twitter, you will find us at Good Seats Still. And uh, on Instagram, you will find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find a Facebook page devoted to us. And um, gee, I think that's about enough ways to contact us. So uh, you cannot... Uh, uh, challenge us uh, by not giving you enough uh, places and ways to uh, to interact and shout out and uh, give us some love or some suggestions. And we love them, of course, so please do so. Uh, and uh, one last item, of course, we want to, as always, say a hearty thanks and uh, 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 an amazing uh, uh, tip of the cap, if you will, to our friend, Dr. Jerry Payne, the good doctor, uh, at Podfly Productions, the uh, folks, and uh, he in particular, uh, who put together our little pieces every week to make this show sound somewhat comprehensible. And we appreciate uh, Jerry and his team at Podfly Productions. You can find out more about them at, of course, podfly.net. All right, I am done for this week. Uh, I thank you tremendously for listening. Uh, all kinds of fun stuff in the uh, weeks and months to come. And uh, we appreciate your uh, you're giving us uh, some love and support for the show, and uh, we love hearing from you. And uh, thanks so much for listening. And until next week, take care. Mm-hmm.